Father, indeed we do praise you this morning. I thank you for calling us here to this place. I thank you for calling us to be your children. And I thank you for calling us into fellowship with you, and with your Son, and with your Spirit. And I pray that this morning we would continue our worship as we open our Bibles and as we study the truth that you've given us in the precious words contained in the Holy Scriptures. Lord, may you be exalted. May we fall in love with you more as a result of the teaching this morning. And may your church be encouraged, strengthened to press on toward the goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so focus our thoughts these next few minutes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Take a seat, get your Bibles out. I hope you're going to be encouraged this morning. This was a sermon that I was originally going to preach on December 26th, but it was a good thing that we woke up with like three inches of snow, but we had to make a call. I talked to Don, Tidor, and Frank and others. <laughs> what do we do? Well, by the time it was 11 o'clock, we'd canceled church. We already had eight inches of snow in our place. So it really started coming down, or about eight inches, but yeah. A question for you this morning. Does anybody know what the most powerful event on earth is? If you think you do, raise your hand. Anybody? See, you talked. I said, raise your hand. Raise your hand. Anybody think you know what it is? Okay, for those that don't listen, does anybody know what the most powerful event on earth is? If you think you know, raise your hand. I'm just curious. Go ahead. Okay, now, if you think you know what it is, go ahead. The answer is a mature hurricane. The most powerful event on earth is it's a mature hurricane. LTL. The combined nuclear arsenals of the United States, okay? And the former Soviet Union, did you know this, don't contain enough energy to keep a hurricane going for one day. Did you know that? Yep. A typical hurricane encompasses a million cubic miles of atmosphere and could provide all the electric power needed by the United States for three or four years. Did you know that? During the Labor Day hurricane of 1935, winds surpassed 200 miles an hour, and people caught outside were sandblasted to death. Think about that. Rescue workers found nothing but their shoes and belt buckles. So much rain can fall during a hurricane up to five inches an hour that the soil liquefies. Hillsides slump into valleys. Birds drown in flight, unable to shield their upward-facing nostrils. In 1970, a hurricane drowned half a million people in what is now Bangladesh. Bangladesh. 
1938, hurricane put downtown Providence, Rhode Island under 10 feet of ocean. The waves generated by that storm, this is just the waves generated by a storm, were so huge that they literally shook the earth. Seismographs in Alaska picked up their impact 5,000 miles away. That is from Sebastian Unger in his book, later made into a movie, The Perfect Storm. Uh, in Mexico Beach, Florida, the carnage left in the wake of a 2018 Hurricane Michael was staggering. Here's a picture of this. Take a look at that. There were homes around this one that, that made it, and most of it is just gone. And that's just a small section of the damage that was done there. Now, but among the devastating scenes aired across cable news channels and published by national media outlets, something stood out among the rubble. The house that you see behind me, a single house named the Sand Palace. Did you ever hear this? Yeah. It appeared to have escaped the storm virtually unscathed. As reported by CNN, this was no coincidence. The Sand Palace was designed by architects to do just that. This is from um, a book or article called How One House Survived Devastating Hurricane Michael by Paul Keskes. He writes, at every point from pilings to the roof and everything in between, when it came to time to make a decision about what level of material or what to use, we didn't pay attention to code. That was from Le Lebracken, LeBron Lackey sharing the story of the project with CNN. We went above and beyond code. And we asked the question, what would survive the big one? And we constantly and consistently tried to build for that. Now while architectural features or construction processes played a part in this home standing strong while so many surrounding it collapsed, but which ones, which architectural features or construction processes played a part in this home, standing strong while so many surrounding it collapsed. Well, among the seven key design decisions contributed were, were these. That the walls were made of poured reinforced concrete. Steel cables traveled from the girders above the pilings through the roof and continued down the back wall. Obviously the house was raised on stilts so the storm surge, storm surge could pass underneath. But perhaps most importantly, the building sits atop pilings that are 40 feet deep. These pilings served as an anchor or a fixed point, Kesky writes, that made the house an immovable ob object. But all the features were all about surpassing the norm. State code in the wake of hand, Hurricane Andrew in 1992 required that houses have to be built to withstand 120 mile per hour winds. However, Lackey's Sand Palace was built to withstand about 240, 250 mile per hour winds. And there you have it. Clearly, 
It is important to have a fixed or a deep foundation to weather a storm. We agree with that? But here's the kick, here's the, the kicker now. That same principle is true for your spiritual life. And this is a point that Peter makes as he encourages his readers to endure the intense storm of persecution that had fall, fallen on them. He says, therefore, you need to turn to First Peter because we're going to stay there and we're going to go to other places, but you need to turn to First Peter in your Bible. He writes this to people that are undergoing intense persecution by the Emperor Nero. Okay? By intense persecution, I don't mean you're labeled uh, having white privilege. <laughs> okay? But you're being martyred, you're being persecuted, being physically beaten, running for your lives. He says this, therefore prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, we have that verse, you can read it up front, behind me, you can see it in your Bible, but let me give you a little context here. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-9, through 9, salvation is masterfully described, okay? And in verse 10... Peter begins to highlight the greatness of salvation. He does so by pointing to four places of evidence or four witnesses. There is the study of the prophets, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the gospel proclamation of the prophets, and the interest of the angels. You see that? Now up to this point, this is where I need you to focus me for a minute here, Peter has simply been stating facts. And facts draw forth praise from our mouth for who God is and what he's done for us. But there's a shift in Peter's thought starting in verse 13 that we just read. Because now, guess what? He begins to issue commands. Who likes to issue commands other than me? <laughs> Anybody in here, you wanna be honest? I need to pray for you because everyone should be raising their hands because I know you all like to dictate at times to people what to do, be in control. Come on, women, raise your hand. You know you like to do it to your husbands. Okay, thank you. Husbands, you like to do it to your wives at times, okay? But Peter is now issuing commands. And salvation has been described and now the duty to those who have received these facts is commanded. And these are exhortations that are based on the great privilege, and it is a great privilege, the first 12 verses of First Peter, but it is a great privilege of receiving the gift of salvation. That should have elicited an amen from the congregation. I'm gonna explain to you how I want you to view these exhortations that we're gonna get into in verse 13 by way of an illustration. In the 1997 movie, As Good As It Gets, ever see this movie? Anybody? Jack Nicholson, Helen Hunt, and so on. Melvin Udall is played by the actor Jack Nicholson, and he is an obsessive, compulsive writer of romantic fiction who is rude to everyone he meets, including his gay neighbor, 
Simon, played by the actor Greg Kinnear. The only person he finds he can conduct a relationship with is a waitress, played by the actress Helen Hunt, at the local diner who will serve him. No other waitress there will serve him because he's rude. But with her son seemingly sick all the time, Carol's often missing from work. And no one else at the restaurant will serve him, so Melvin arranges for a local doctor to treat the boy. And doctor's name is Dr. Betts. Now, when his gay neighbor Simon um, suffers an unfortunate accident and needs a ride to Baltimore to ask his parents for money, Melvin agrees to take him. And the following is Melvin's conversation with Carol the waitress when he asks her to accompany him on this trip. Now, keep in mind, this is the, 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 the thought here, the idea we're going to get from this is the idea that Peter has for his readers. So Carol says this, so anything else? Melvin says, yes, I'm going to give my queer neighbor a lift to Baltimore. Okay, Carol says. Melvin says this, well, hey, what I did for you is working out. And Carol, with this really emotional look on her face, says, what you did for me changed my life. Melvin says, now I want you to do something for me. And Carol's just stunned. And she says this, oh, I'm sorry. Didn't I say what? I thought I said what? What? What do you want me to do for you? Melvin says, I want you to go on this trip. And Carol says, no, sir. He says, I can't do this alone. I need you to chaperone, separate everything but cars. You said you like convertibles. Now I'm on the hook. Two days is all I need. She says, I can't, I work. He says, you take off when you have to. What's well, my son? Listen, the doctor says he's doing fine. Well, Melvin, I'd rather not. Well, what's that got to do with it? Funny, I thought it was a strong point. Write me a note, ain't she sweet? I need a hand, and where'd she go? Are you saying accepting your help obligates me? Is there another way to see it? And she says, no. Now, there is no other way, folks, no other way to see these exhortations Peter has given us, these commands. How you feel about what he's about to tell you what to do, these commands, it has absolutely nothing to do with it. For those who have received this great salvation by grace, are you ready? You are obligated there is no other way of seeing it, but you are obligated to obey these commands. In other words, folks, you and I, we all owe it to God. We owe it to him. So let's briefly break down verse 13. The, the main verb in this sentence, when it's verse, and the first command is to fix your hope. Okay? Fix your hope. Again, it's a call to duty on the part of every Christian. Because we've been saved, because God's given us this great gift of salvation, we are obligated to live in hope. Do you understand that? That's the first command. He wants you to fix your hope. To live in hope. 
And frankly, I don't think we live in hope because we really don't know how to live in hope, do we? When I think of hope, one of the verses that came to my mind thinking about this, this, this sermon was 1 Corinthians 13, 13, which is what? These three things abide. What are they? Faith, Faith hope, and love. Now, I have read books on how to love, and I've read books on how to live by faith, but I, I've never read a book on hope. And perhaps it's because there just aren't that many books on how to hope. And as a result, I believe our culture, Christian culture that is, is missing an element of Christian experience. And if we're really honest with ourselves, we don't really live in hope because we really like this life so much. We're comfortable. We have our needs met. Now, because hope is similar to faith, we tend to get these confused. I want to clarify this briefly because you won't understand this sermon if you don't get this point down. Both faith and hope believe in God, okay? They both believe in God. Where they differ is faith is believing God in the present, okay? Hope is believing God for the future, all right? Faith believes what God has said and done. Hope believes what God has promised yet to do. You're going to put it another way. Faith appropriates, hope anticipates, you with me so far? You awake? Okay, good. Now with that clarified, let's revisit what Peter says. He says, fix your hope. You owe it to God to live for the future and anticipate the glorious fulfillment of his future promise. You're commanded to live in hope and to focus on that hope. And notice that it says we are to fix our hope what? Completely. That means unreservedly, a once-for-all decision. Put your hope on the one once-for-all who has saved you. So there's nothing half-hearted about this, nothing indecisive about this. You are all in on this hope. And if I were to summarize Peter's thought so far, it would be this. Because God has chosen us and provided us with so great a salvation, we owe it to God to live or fix our hope confidently in the future he has promised. That's what you owe God, to live in that hope. You're obligated to do that. Now, as in all things in Christianity, God commands us not to hope, not so much for what hope does for us, but for the sake of his glory. Let me give you an example from the Bible. You need to turn there to Romans chapter 4. Verses 16 through 22. It's the story of a man who hoped in God. In the end, God was glorified. Romans chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. Talking about Abraham, it says this. For this reason it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. 
as is written, a father of many nations have I made you. In the presence of him who believed, even God, who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. And verse 18 is the key phrase here. In hope against hope he believed. So he might become a father of many nations according to that which has been spoken. So shall your descendants be. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, what? Giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Remember the story of Abraham? God promised Abraham that he would be the father of many nations at the ripe old age of 75. 25 years passed before Abraham experienced the fullness of God's promise. And during those 25 years, guess what? Abraham hoped. It says that hope against hope. Now what does that mean, hope against hope? Well, at their age, both Abraham and Sarah were beyond the age of conceiving the child. There was no logical reason for them to hope. But it was in hope against hope that he believed. He continued to believe in the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief. When every circumstance and every logical thought told him it was impossible. He, his fixed hope in the promise of God, watch this now, it made him strong in faith. And in doing so, what happened? He gave glory to God, verse 20. See that? And this is why we hope, folks. We fix our hope, we're commanded to hope, we're obligated to God to hope, to put the glory back on him, to give him glory. If I would put it simply, it'd be this, God is glorified when you hope in his future promise. Think about that for a moment. God is glorified when you hope in his future promise. Now, what is it that we hope for? Look at, go back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. I hope that you are encouraged by this portion of the sermon. It says, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See that? Now, we don't fix our hope on what? The revelation of Jesus Christ. But on what? Look at it. The grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the revelation of Jesus Christ, in case you're confused, it refers to his second coming. But what is the grace to be brought to us at the second coming? Now, we already know that we are saved by grace through faith, right? And Peter's telling us that this grace just continues to the second coming. But specifically, this grace, I believe, refers to two things. Number one, it refers to the completion of our salvation, which is by grace. And in this way, grace leads us to hope in the second coming. But secondly, the grace to be brought to us is verbal admiration, perfection of person, and rewards. Let me explain. 
Peter wrote this a few verses earlier. This is why I had you stay in 1 Peter. Go to verse 7. It says, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in what? Praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, after reading this verse, I don't know how many times in my life, I assume that the praise and the glory and the honor referred to us praising and glorifying and honoring God. But that's not what the text says, does it? It doesn't say that. We are found because of our tested genuine faith, now watch this, worthy of praise and glory and honor. This is the grace to be brought to us at his second coming. I mean, I want you to see that God wants to grant you praise. God wants to grant you glory. God wants to grant you honor when Jesus comes again. And to think that we will someday see the Lord and receive from him praise, I mean, it's just mind-boggling. This idea of receiving praise from God is not just mentioned here, but it's found elsewhere in Scripture. Just, I mean, do you know this, folks? You just listen to me and look at me. That you can have favor, you can please God. Look at 1 Peter 2.20. But if when you do what is right and suffer for what you patient and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. So you can find favor with God. You can bring God joy. Matthew 25, 21, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into what? The joy of your master. And you can receive praise from God, Romans 2, 29. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from men, but from God. See, a Jew who is one inwardly is one whose heart is spiritually has been cleansed and circumcised by the Spirit. That's the true believer. A Jew who is one outwardly is one whose heart remains uncircumcised by the Spirit. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 2.29 is this. True faith receives praise from God. And it's an amazing thought. Now we know that faith is a gift from God, Right? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is a gift from God. The faith you're given to believe, I mean, it's, it's given to you by God, it's a gift. So we know that faith is a gift from God, and he gives it to us, and then guess what? Peter's saying he then praises us for it. Talk about generosity. Now go back to Peter's point. When we face Jesus Christ at his revelation, we will receive praise from God if we have a tested, genuine faith. And I believe that what we want, that praise will be a verbal admiration. God will praise us or commend us verbally. You will hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Now, the second term that Peter uses is glory. And I call it perfection of person. Romans 2.7 and, and, and 2.10 say this. 
to those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, 2.10. But glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So to those who seek for glory and honor and immortality, it is implied that God will grant them what? Eternal life. Paul's saying that it is the pursuit of believers to seek glory and honor and immortality. Verse 10 says that God will give glory and honor and peace to those who do good. So again, we see that God is going to give us glory. He's going to give us glory. Now, what kind of glory is God going to give us? Well, it's not just going to give us like a verbal praise, but glory. Now, watch this. Namely, his glory. Jesus was God's glory in human flesh, right? Right? John 1, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now watch this. We will be like him. 1 John 3, 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. Amen? Now we will possess the glory of God, eternal, glorious perfection. Eternal, glorious perfection of person in Christ's likeness. Now, how do we even begin to comprehend perfection in our imperfect world? I mean, what does that mean to receive glory? Well, I believe that God gives us glimpses of perfection, kind of a little appetizer of things to come that we can see just the smallest glimpses in this imperfect world. And they serve as a reminder of what is to come. Here's one such example. In 1973, I believe the world got to experience a glimpse of perfection. I want you to listen to the response of the people to this event and the words they chose when they witnessed this, after witnessing this. In 1973, at the Belmont, Secretariat won the last race of the Triple Crown in such a dominating fashion that those in attendance were left speechless. He won that race by 31 lengths, which is an unfathomable distance. No other horse in all of history has ever won that race by such a decisive length. You ever see that, or watch that race? You ever see it live on TV like that? Yeah. But here's a testimony, this is what struck me, the testimony of a few who got to briefly taste this perfection. This is these are experts. This is Pat Lynch of the New York Racing Association. There's a Jack Whitaker of CBS Sports, George Plimpton, I'll quote, and Haywood Hale Brown, another CBS commentator. Um, <clears throat> this, is what they, they, this is what they testified to, this is what they said. This is Pat Lynch of the New York Racing Association. It was like the Lord was holding the reins. Secretariat was one of his creatures, and he maybe whispered to him, a go. 
and that horse really went. It was really almost a supernatural experience. Jack Whitaker of CBS Sports said this, everybody was speechless, and he was there. Everybody was speechless. And then when it set in, people were crying. I actually saw people crying at this event. I actually saw people crying at this event. It was such an overwhelming thing. George Plimpton wrote this, there were these co-eds lining the rail. This sounds hard to believe, but I swear half of them were weeping as Secretariat went by. Jack Nicholas, this is from, quote from Haywood Hale Brown. Jack Nicholas, everyone know who, who Jack Nicholas is, right? Arguably the greatest golfer who ever has lived. Jack Nicholas once called me over and said, You were at the Belmont, you saw that race. And I said, Yes. Jack said, I was all alone in my living room watching, and as he came down the stretch, pulling away, I applauded and I cried. I said, Jack, don't you understand? All of your life in your golf game, you've been striving for perfection. At the end of the Belmont, you saw it. That's perfection. We will receive the perfection of persons. A, a, a glory that will make us in such a perfect image of Jesus Christ that we will be worthy to be worshipped. Because think about it. What happens when an angel, which is lower than man, comes to earth? What happens to the, the and this is a consistent testimony of scripture, when your, your garden variety angel just comes down and if he were to re reveal himself right there, what would everybody do? You would fall down and be out of life, out of energy, right? That would be a, a, a perfection. God has perfected these angels. We will be greater than that being made in the image of Christ. That's the glory that we receive. That's the grace that we receive. Praise and glory, and the third word is honor. What does he mean by that? God will honor us. How will he honor us at his second coming? Well, I believe this is referring to rewards. Honor from God given to us, now listen to this, because of our service rendered to him. Revelation 22, 12 says this, Behold, I am coming quickly, and what? My reward is with me, to render to every man according to what he has done. So he comes to give rewards. Now personally, I am stunned by the humility and generosity of God. I mean, God alone is worthy of praise and glory and honor, and yet he shares all three with us. I mean, how is that possible? And I want you to hear me on this. Because our destiny is glorification, you see, at, at his appearing, we will be made in the exact image of Christ. And because we are made in the image of Christ, we will be full possessors of a perfect body and soul. This means that then, 
at that moment in time, we will then be worthy of praise. Therefore, he can share praise, glory, and honor with us. He can't do that now. He will when he comes again. We'll be worthy of praise, worthy of glory, and worthy of honor. So we fix our hope completely on this grace to be brought to us. And what is that gracious gift that God will give? Praise, glory, and honor at his second coming. I'm gonna take your silence as a hearty amen. As we finish up here, namely, finally, Peter instructs us on how to fix our hope. And I want you to know exactly what you need to do, but how do we fix our hope completely on the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ? We're to do two things. You need to prepare your minds for action and keep sober in spirit. The first point, prepare your minds for action. Your version of the Bible may say, gird your minds for action, okay? And that gives us a clue of what it means to prepare or to gird. Well, in ancient times, this word was used to refer to gathering up your robe. If you wanted to move quickly or in a hurry, you had to go to battle, for example, you didn't just go moving with your robe flying everywhere. They would take the corners of the robe and they would tie it to the belt or to the sash, okay? So they could move rapidly. And so Peter's idea here when he says, gird or prepare your mind, is be ready to move. It's just Specifically, fix your hope on the grace that is to come that will reveal your eternal inheritance and be ready to move because it could happen at any moment. So there's this constant fixing of our hope on the grace that will be revealed to us at his second coming. Think of it this way. Just don't be tied to anything here. Let nothing hinder your mind as you fixate on the hope. Let this hope consume your thoughts. Second, he says, keep sober in spirit. And while literally this word means not to get drunk, metaphorically it means don't be intoxicated by the world. And that's hard to do. Apply spiritual self-control through a well-disciplined life. Now, as I thought about this, my mind went back to a Lot's wife. Remember the story of Lot's wife? As Lot and his family were escaping God's judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah, the hail and the brimstone were falling down on Sodom and Gomorrah, what does his wife do? Look back and turn into a pillar of salt. Now, the phrase, look back, in Genesis 19.26 means that she looked back on Sodom and Gomorrah with a favorable desire. There's a longing to be back there. You see, she was intoxicated with the world. I mean, she was called to heaven, but she loved the world. She was double-minded. And the opposite of being double-minded is being sober in spirit. 
So, by way of a final illustration, what is Peter saying to us this morning? He's saying this. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. Old time is still a-flying. And this same flower that smiles today, tomorrow will be dying. This is a line from a poem called To the Virgins to Make Much of Time. And if it sounds eerily familiar to you, it's probably because you first heard it watching the movie The Dead Poet Society. In this movie, this line is quoted in the honor room of this prestigious school we find that the walls are lined with class pictures and trophies dating back to the 1800s. Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. The Latin term for that semen is what? Carpe diem, which is what? Seize the day, exactly. And the teacher, played by Robin Williams, is trying to convey this thought to his students to, to waste no time in making their lives extraordinary. And he asks a penetrating question. Why does the writer use these lines? Gather ye rosebuds while ye may. And his answer is sobering. He says, because we are food for worms, lads. Because believe it or not, each and every one of us in this room is one day going to stop breathing, turn cold, and die. As he gathers the boys closer to take a uh, a, a more intimate look at these boys in the pictures, he says this, and these are words we need to remember because this is a point I think Peter is making to us when he says, prepare your minds, be sober in spirit. He says this to these boys. They're not that different from any of you, are they? There's hope in their eyes, just like in yours. They believe themselves destined for wonderful things, just like many of you. Well, where are those smiles now, boys? What of that hope? Did most of them not wait until it was too late before making their lives into even one iota of what they were capable? In chasing the almighty deity of success, they did not squander their boyhood dreams. Most of those gentlemen are fertilizing daffodils. And that's Peter's point, really. Live with an eternal perspective. Don't get tied down to the pleasures of this world. Fix your hope on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And if, if this was new to you, then you have a pass. If you didn't know that you were going to receive praise and glory and honor, okay? But if you knew this, and maybe you've allowed your heart to grow a little cold and you kind of like your life here, and you really stop thinking about the hope that is yours at his second coming, you're obligated to live this way. You owe it to God to live this way. And it's difficult at times for us to put this in our minds because we have it so easy and we're so comfortable. But to these people and to what I believe is coming to this country and is coming to Christians in particular is persecution. And when you're persecuted, you're going to want to fix your hope as these people are because this is great instruction on how to live in hope during times of persecution. 
fix that hope completely on that grace that is to be brought to you at his second coming. See, that is how you live in hope. Because it's one thing to hope, I mean, it's really kind of pathetic that we get so overwhelmed at, in the grand scheme of things, COVID-19 is a blip on the radar. And we get so overwhelmed and find we are low on hope and woe is me and people are hoarding and everything. No, 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 no. We live our lives right here and now in light of what is, lies ahead for us. And now you know, it's praise and glory and honor at his second coming. Let's pray. Father, as we close the song this morning, remind us, as the application point says, to focus on hope this week. And all God's people said, amen. amen. You may stand. Let's close with a song.